0: Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Anya Kamenetz. Anya has covered education for many years, including for NPR, where she co-created the podcast Life Kit Parenting. She speaks, writes, and thinks about learning in the future. Her new book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now, is now available.
1: With over one in five children in the U.S. living in a food insecure household, school provided meals play a critical role for many students across the nation. There's certainly going to be adverse childhood experiences that come out of that because of the stress on families. The mental health toll was was really, really staggering for kids.
0: The reality of prolonged school shutdowns as a precautionary measure could be crippling. 22 million students rely on free or reduced
1: price school lunches. For many, it's their only hot meal of the day. Data is emerging on the devastating impact that learning loss has had on underserved communities. And understanding that data means understanding the humans behind it. Hi, I'm Anya Kamenetz, and I want Americans to put real, live children at the center of their decision-making for once. Sorry, not Sorry.
0: Anya, I want to get into the book, but first, will you just tell our listeners a bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. My name is Anya Kamenetz. I live in Brooklyn. I have two daughters and a husband, and I have been a journalist and an author. I recently left my job at NPR to focus on kind of generational justice is how I'm thinking about it, but it's a lot to do with climate, as well as the issues in The Stolen Year, which have to do with children and how we make decisions for their futures.
0: Just take me back to what inspired you to write The Stolen Year.
1: Yeah. So when the pandemic started, when schools shut down in March, 2020, I was here, I was working from home in this office, which is six by eight feet in Brooklyn. And my two girls were home from preschool and from school. And because I was an education reporter, I really had a front row seat to what was happening. But more than that, I knew what was going to happen because I had been a reporter when Katrina hit my hometown. And I saw that schools were closed for a few months in the city of New Orleans. Kids were mostly out of school only for a few weeks, but the reverberations of that lasted for years. So right away, I was like, this is going to be a really big deal. Shutting down schools, even if it's only for the spring, is going to be a really big deal.
0: And you mentioned you said you had a front row seat. What were you seeing? in that front row that led you down the path to you think this is going to be something?
1: I mean, starting with the basics, in February 2020, in fact, I was reporting a really fun story on kind of the future of school food. I was immersed in all these statistics about the school food program. It's the second largest federal food program, serves 30 million kids, gives out 8 billion meals a year, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and summer meals. And you knew in big cities because the mayor of Los Angeles, the mayor of New York City was saying, we don't know if we can close schools because we don't know if kids are going to get something to eat if we close the schools. So that was right away. And right away, I was talking to food service lunch ladies, we call them, and they had turned into frontline workers and they were giving out paper bags in in parking lots and they weren't able to get to everybody. And we saw in the statistics that kids went hungry at really high rates. In fact, some of the highest rates that we had ever seen since we started collecting that kind of information. So that was April 2020. In the
0: United States, schools have become basically the access point for so many social services for kids, food, medicine, therapies, just overall social support. Can you just walk me through how that came to be? Like, what is the history of that?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that. Basically, you start to realize that public education is just a massive anomaly because we don't have these other things that other rich countries have. We don't have paid family leave. We don't have a real childcare system and we don't have housing and we don't have income support for families. For many families, school just isn't a place for education. It's a way to avoid hunger. And with the new digital learning school year quickly approaching, many parents want to ensure their children don't go without the school provided meals they rely on from the earliest colonial times. And it would really be like the very first law was passed by Massachusetts. It was called the old deluder Satan law. Basically like to fight Satan, every town must take up a collection, hire a schoolmaster, and we're all going to pay in common and we're going to create this thing. That was very much a Northern colony idea. The slave holding colonies had a very different take on education. It was much more likely to be private. And obviously for enslaved people, they were banned from learning to read. So we didn't build that infrastructure as much in the South. And we see that legacy today. But over centuries, we created this incredible American institution with 13,000 individual school districts, democratically elected school boards, people are paying taxes, and they're creating these warm, well-lighted rooms where most of our children are able to access services of all kinds until one day it all shut down.
0: In the intro... To your book, you start telling the stories of people at the very start of the pandemic where they have their, like, oh shit, this is real moment. Did you have a moment like that?
1: Yeah, (laughs) definitely. I think that, you know, I sent my daughters to a Purim party. So it was like two or three days earlier. And I was like, oh, this is weird. Should we go to this party? Should we not go to this party? And then I was good because I was a reporter. Other parents in my daughter's school were like, oh, we hear that there's a teacher sick with COVID. You have to break this news. And I was getting all these calls and texts. And then the mayor basically finally announced, he announced it very late over a weekend that school was going to close. But I had already decided, oh, my kids are not going to school on Monday. That was really it. And I was like, oh, it's like if you were a hurricane reporter. And then all of a sudden the hurricane's in your house.
0: You think about again, as we discussed all of those programs, those social programs, those access points for so many people for food and medicine, and all of that. My thought is like, how does that as a parent weigh into that moment of saying, "You know what? I'm not sending my kids to school on Monday." I think for me, at least I kept my kids home immediately, but I understand like that I had a certain amount of privilege to be able to do that, and a lot of parents just don't. So what happens when kids suddenly don't have that access and parents can't make decisions based on what's best for their health but has to make decisions based on necessity?
1: I'll tell you two stories, Alyssa. One of them is Heather is the name that she chose, a woman that I met in St. Louis and she has 8 children. And just take that in for a sec. She's lived in her car, she's lived in substandard housing. When I met her, she was living in very substandard housing and She had to go to work. The relief money came, but it came, it took a while. And she had a low wage job in a homeless shelter, which was an in-person job. And so she was going to work. And so she would lock the door on her kids when she went to work, if she couldn't find someone to watch them. And one day in May, her seven-year-old got out. He and some older friends broke into a building that, according to Heather, was a trap house, like being used for drug dealing. And a man came out and shot him in the leg. And this little boy, thank God he recovered. But now Heather didn't know what to do. She didn't have child care. Still, they called, obviously, social services. And by the way, the newspaper story on this calls this seven-year-old boy a burglary suspect. So the social worker comes. They lecture her. They don't have any help for her. So she loses her job. Now she's out of a job and the kid still doesn't have childcare or therapy.
0: Some parents are now preparing to physically go back to work, but plans are still up in the air about camp and schools and with limited childcare options. What is a parent
1: to do? That was the reality for who knows how many families are across the country. And we still don't know. There's a lot that we're never going to know. And then what
0: do you think or what do you know will be the long-term effects? You mentioned before what happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina when schools closed. Are there effects? And what did that effect have on the kids there? And what long-term problems did we see? And do you see us having those same types of problems from COVID?
1: So I want to be really intentional about how we talk about this because we never want to label any kind of kid or group of kids as being doomed or scarred irreparably. Like we believe in kids and their potential and their future, and they can be helped. Kids can get past this, but we have to recognize what happened. So if we take Katrina as an example, it took two years for kids who were out of school for only several weeks to get back up to their same level of what, where you would have expected them to be. So that learning potential. And we can see this now across the country. Kids lost, they missed learning. They missed many, many weeks of learning. And honestly, those gaps continued into the 2020-21 school year and into this school year in many cases because of absenteeism, because of quarantine rules. We haven't even had a recovery year yet. So the, there's a need for extra learning time for dosages of tutoring and that kind of thing. Then there's a the mental health impact, which is cross-class. It doesn't matter how privileged you were. There were kids who were suffering in all kinds of situations. There's a national recognition, I think, that we're in literally a children's mental health emergency. And we have to mention, too, that there was a mass orphaning and bereavement that took place because our death toll was just so high. There are almost 200,000 children that lost a parent or a close caregiver to COVID itself. Say that again. There are at least 200,000 children who lost a parent or a close caregiver to COVID itself.
0: So, if we had this model from Katrina and we knew what the potential was, how did we fail so badly on a national level when we legitimately had a model to follow?
1: That question cuts really deep for me. And that is why the book goes into history, because I believe that this holds up a mirror to America and America's true values. Obviously, we're in the middle of this conversation about Roe versus Wade and what does it actually mean to be pro life, right? And actually, pro baby. But there's very deep reasons why we don't have these structures of care in America. And a lot of it has to do with how architects of our public policy are so concerned with upholding husbands as wage earners that there's always been a reluctance to give any kind of help to women on their own because the fear has always been, and this has been very explicit in the 19th century. And in the 20th century, if we give money to women who are raising children on their own, we will undermine the dictate that women find a man to support them and that they live in an economic unit with a man. And that's, it's really as simple as that.
0: Yeah. And I think because they could not, and this is part of my life work is getting the Equal Rights Amendment passed and I think part of overturning Roe, it's all just about keeping the white cis man in a position of power, keeping him in the corner office, knowing that women who are true equals, if not superior on many levels, would be in direct competition with them. It's really mind-boggling when you think about how deep that misogyny and sexism goes, gets me every time.
1: Oh, totally. There's also parts in here where I am looking back at sort of the feminism that I was raised with. I graduated college in 2002, but there's some turning points and there's some sticky points. So for example, in the early 1970s, Walter Mondale, Senator Mondale brought to Congress a comprehensive childcare bill.
0: American Families Plan will provide access to quality, affordable child care.
1: President Biden's American Families Plan aims to ensure low and middle income families with children up to the age of five don't pay more than 7% of their income on childcare. But we've actually done this successfully before, during World War II.
0: When so many men were off overseas and they were fighting and the the nation needed women to go into the workforce, children needed someplace to go there. We really needed the
1: support of of a universal child care system. So in 1943, Congress passed the Lanham Act, the country's first, and as of now, only national child care program. It's gonna be national child care. And the National Organization for Women, you mentioned the ERA, right? So the National Organization for Women was just getting off the ground, gaining chapters, gaining force, and they were divided. And ultimately, one historian says, half-hearted in their advocacy for child care. And the reason was that they didn't want to come right out of the gate and say, we're mommies and our job is to get our kids taken care of. Feminism at that moment was searching for a reason for being that wasn't fully identifying women and mothers. And so it becomes such a complicated issue because it's like, do you want childcare? Do you want wages for housework? Do you want a pension program for women? Is it about expanding welfare? Or do women just want to get to their own corner offices and ultimately hire a bunch of nannies? and buy their way out of the conundrum.
0: Yep, all of it. Why can't it be all of it? This is not a linear thing. Like it could be one thing for one woman and something else for another woman. And the fucked up part is they're taking away those choices.
1: We have to support choice for all women. The question is, how do we build the biggest tent? And how do we create a feminism that really works for women that have to work and women that don't want to work and women that want to dominate economically? We need to have that system That enables all of the choices. But what I'm trying to point out is in our political history, the constituents have been divided against themselves rather than everybody pushing for these things together.
0: We need to push for all of it. Many of the kids who were hurt the most during this COVID time were already in precarious economic situations before the pandemic. And then the pandemic happened. So what effect did the pandemic have? On them and their families. And I also want to mention that there is an element that I think we can't deny that this generation of youth and young people and kids already had it hard because of the gun violence issue that plagues our country and the trauma that we place upon our young when we force them to do lockdown drills and where their reality is that they can kiss their mom and dad goodbye in the morning and then go to a school, which might potentially be shut up. So I think that all of this is layered on top of each other. And so what effect did the pandemic have on an already struggling generation and their families?
1: I would add climate change to that and also racial injustice. It was very fascinating to see the George Floyd protests break out and for Teenagers that I was talking to at that moment in the pandemic, it was like they left their houses for the first time to this global uprising. And so many of the marches were led by multiracial groups of teenagers in towns all over America. So they're not just passive victims. They are so active and they're so inspiring in reacting to all of these challenges. I mean, so here's the fascinating thing about when you talk about poor families in the pandemic, There were these inconsistent waves and ebbs and flows of federal support and help. So families went hungry, as I mentioned, 17.5% of parents told the Census Bureau in April 2020 that their own children were not getting enough to eat. And then we kicked in. We kicked in with the CARES money, with pandemic food, extra food support. And by the end of that year, child poverty had gone down. And Joe Biden came in with a child tax credit. Cash money to parents, not a new idea, an idea that every other wealthy country does. You give cash to parents and all of a sudden child poverty goes down. So child poverty went down. And then what do we do? We let that tax credit expire. A new financial pinch for families in the new year. The expanded child tax credit put in place this summer has just expired. It's not going away. It's just cutting back. Back to what it used to be. Credits that grew to up to $3,600 per child will shrink back down to $2,000. And money won't be delivered each month. A local financial expert says it's going to force families to build new budgets. The reality is what's coming in can only go so far. And so you've got to focus on the most important things. And then what happened? Well, that brings us to the beginning of 2022 and an unbelievable political landscape and no help in sight. Inflation skyrocketing. There's a huge fear that hunger is right now creeping back up to levels that, you know, the researchers get really alarmed by this stuff. And there have been, it's like waiting for Congress to act, waiting for Congress to act, and then the states have to act. And then it all ends up to a family finally getting their check. But I volunteered by text message with a mutual aid group in my neighborhood where it was families that spoke Spanish and they would just request what they needed every week. And we'd have to like take their needs and I need oil, I need milk, I need diapers. And, you know, people are thanking you, but it's like, this is not how it's supposed to work. It's not supposed to be just neighbor to neighbor. That's why we have this massive government. And the response has been not just... It's been generous at times, but the inconsistency of it is really terrifying. And
0: you mentioned the protests after the police murder of George Floyd. I'm wondering, just in a broader sense, how did racism affect kids during COVID?
1: Oh, it's such a great question. So we have this school system that has been affected by segregation since the very beginning, since there were laws against enslaved people learning to read. And we have this centuries-long fight for inclusion that has led to persistent inequities in access to opportunities. And the way that that intersected with the pandemic was one of the mothers I feature in the book, she also worked as a teacher's aide in DC public schools. And she was like, very frank. She's like, I can't put my kids back in that building. I can't work in that building. When I used to have pre-K, there would be mice running over the children when they napped on their mats. And now you're going to tell me that you created safety protocols that I can trust with the pandemic. So the lack of trust kept students of color home longer because their schools were dilapidated and they didn't have trust with their leadership. And so those kids didn't get as much school. They missed more school because of the legacy of racism.
0: And also for those that were asked to learn online if you don't have high-speed broadband, it's very difficult to learn online. And that's a civil rights issue right there. It is.
1: It absolutely is. And it's also the housing issue. So I talked to a 16-year-old girl in New Orleans. She was not living in her home. She was living with friends. There were six younger children that she was responsible for as the adults were working. And so she's the one responsible for their Zoom passwords and getting them on their classes. Like, Teenage girls. That's also a legacy. Who are we putting in those positions and what does the households look like? Because what kind of support do these communities have?
0: I want to talk a little bit about the politicization of COVID and the vaccines and how that has impacted kids.
1: It's been a very difficult environment for anybody who's trying to make sense of this rapidly changing pandemic and the emerging science. And for people in the media, and I'm not complaining, obviously, but like being targeted, coming down on a different side of an issue from what people think you are, think you should be that's incredibly toxic. And the polarization, it's very clear in the statistics that the more Trump voters were in a school district, the more likely that school district was to open. Not disease rates, not vaccination rates, and not safety precautions. It was polarization. Politics. And so that led to this really confusing situation because we're not following the science. And when people follow the science, they're being shouted down and everything is going to politics. And where we could have had, where other countries had clear, centralized messaging and data collection that built trust in the protocols. We didn't have any of that. We didn't have anything that was centralized. We didn't have anything that was clear. Everything was politicized. And so whether or not you have masks on in your community, all of a sudden became something that people were brawling over, literally. People were physically attacking school personnel over mask mandates. I really
0: just worry that kids saw so much of. The disinformation surrounding vaccines and that history of vaccines, quote unquote, being dangerous. And I just worry that in their formative years, they're seeing this. And I don't know, do you think that there will be lasting impacts because of the intentional spread of disinformation?
1: We've already seen a downturn in children getting their basic shots and that was partly from pandemic access problems, but it's also because of the massive weaponization of misinformation and have to call out the Internet platforms that make money off of the traffic when people get insane about these kinds of things. So that's already happened. Kids have missed shots. We went to her two year checkup and she got her flu shot and everything that she needed. But officials at the Tennessee Department of Health report thousands of families
0: across the state didn't do the same. Professor of pediatrics at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, Dr. Joseph Gigante, says that means kids missed out on recommended vaccines. They're our best tool to help fight disease and prevent children from getting sick and keep them healthy.
1: They probably gotten sick when they didn't have to get sick, not just from COVID, from lots of things. Repairing that and walking it back, I mean, historically, requiring vaccinations for kids to go to school has been how we get to herd immunity for every disease, whether it's smallpox, whether it's mumps, measles, these are just ordinary things that we require because that's like a time when you are, you know, you come before the officialdom and you have to get registered and that's when people do it. So I had thought, and I published a story about this on NPR. I was like, should there be a COVID school vaccine mandate? It seems like a good way, not that kids are the most at risk, but it's a good way to make sure that people get their vaccine. And that's such a like radioactive idea now. It seems like it's going to be really hard to do. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? It's interesting. I just got back from a conference of high school principals, and they were from all over the country. And I talked about like how special I think schools are. Schools still exist. They are battered, but they're still standing. And they are still full of people that care about kids. And so in that room, there were red states and blue states. And they all agreed on the basic facts. They had they would come back to reality. It was like, yes, our kids need learning time. Yes, our kids are suffering mentally, emotionally. The people that made CRT into a buzzword have tried to come after social emotional learning, SEL. But schools aren't having it. Like red state schools are still investing money in mental health for kids and social emotional skills for kids because they know that they need it. So I still maintain that kind of optimism that there is an institution that maintains some strength that can rebuild. But we need to take a hard look at what we did to kids. That's what I'm trying to do with this book. I just want people to take a look and think about it. And what do you think? I
0: know we talked about this before, but just going back to that, do you think schools should be the nexus of the access to social services? Are there better ways to deliver those services? And if you think there are, what are the better ways? Child tax credit.
1: Give parents money. It's so obvious. It really works. And we just had a great little experiment in this country where we reduced child poverty by a third. If the program had continued and they figured out how to reach more undocumented families, it would have reduced child poverty by one half. So it's very clear that we need to do that. We need to pass child tax credit. It's, so, it's brain dead if you don't do this. It pencils out economically because the kids get more education and they get better. But that doesn't matter. The point is kids shouldn't be hungry in this country, period. And also we need to subsidize the childcare system. The childcare system is in complete shambles after the pandemic. And you need to subsidize it on both sides. You need to give families money to pay for it. And you need to give child care providers money so they can earn a living wage because child care providers do not earn a living wage. So that's very clear. Cities and states are working on this. Portland was one that passed one kind of early on in the pandemic. You get this guaranteed wage and you subsidize it and you give universal 4K and then 3K and you kind of cover it. So that's a basic package. Paid family leave. Yes. Only country without it. Child care, child tax credit. It's good for the economy it's good for society, and it's good for these kids.
0: Your book tells a lot of really personal and heartbreaking stories. I'm wondering, did anything surprise you as you were researching and writing?
1: Yeah. I learned a lot more about children in foster care. I hadn't, I'd done some reporting on that area, but the foster care system just intersected with so many of the kids that I was talking to. And even some of the parents had their own experiences. So I learned a lot more about that. So I did not know that roughly one half of Black families in this country and roughly one half of Native families in this country are touched by an investigation from the child welfare system. That's a knock at your door, an official questioning you. And this happened to Heather after her son was shot, right? No help, just threats. And so the system of like, how do we create, and it's called family policing. You have people on here talking about prison abolition, right? Like there are many people who are familiar with the family welfare system who call themselves abolitionists and say, we have an infrastructure that punishes families. It doesn't save kids. And this has became like my core insight revelation in researching this book is like, it's a fantasy to think that you can rescue children without helping their families. Children don't come alone. You have to heal families. What gives you hope? How mad people are right now. (laughs) It was really the major thing, like how much attention people are paying. And I don't know about you. I mean, I'm flashing back to like early 2017, where right after Donald Trump was elected, it's like people felt that feeling like, oh, things are really bad. I better get organized. And I feel that way. I see people kind of feeling that way again. I hope that there's a new, more effective wave of organizing that comes from this.
0: Anya Kamenetz, you give me hope. Thank you so much for doing the podcast and for all you do. Thank you so much.
1: The question of the post-truth world is something that I face existentially in my job as a journalist as well as as an observer of education. I think that there hasn't been a time since the Middle Ages where there was such a pitched battle between the forces of rationality and the forces of ignorance and superstition. The university originally arose during that time as a place where people could study the known texts, but within that, develop their critical faculties and uh, elaborate and innovate new knowledge. And so I think there's nothing less demanding of us today in our educational institutions than a reinvention of that medieval um, light where we can say, how can we create and innovate new sources of knowledge? How can we arm and equip people to um, to do battle against the forces of ignorance and, uh, and sustain those rational humanistic values that really have persisted uh, for centuries?
0: It seems like such a cliche now, you know, like, think of the children. But we need to think of our children in all of our national decisions. The toll of this pandemic, this never-ending pandemic, will have the longest effects on them. And we need to be investing right now in ways to mitigate the damage from physical and mental health initiatives to efforts to combat medical disinformation, which will save them in the next pandemic. COVID created terrible tragedy. But it's also given us the opportunity to rethink the way we exist in America. It's a national reset button, which will be the reset, which allows us to be more just, more equitable, and more focused on people instead of on profit. It can be the impetus that truly drives us to leave a better world for our children. But only if we have the courage to do it.